0: Hi, Shade.
1: How are you? Doing alright. Okay, I've got a question that I've been asking a lot of people lately. And you're a pretty chill person, so I feel like this is actually an interesting one to ask you as well. So, my question for you today is, what's something that makes you really angry?
0: I guess stupidity is the thing that I really... uh these days feel most sort of angered by. And so when I look at what's been going on in Texas and elsewhere, I feel like those are the things that make me most angry. Just doing things that seem like they're bad for everybody.
1: Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Texas seems like a, disaster, which is a topic I guess we can circle back to at some point, probably not I think we're going to have
0: to, although maybe circle back is the wrong term, because most of my colleagues are saying, well, they won't go to conferences in Texas, they won't do talks with Texas, they won't do a whole variety of things. There have
1: already been deaths. Have you seen this?
0: Yeah, I have.
1: So that seems great. Six weeks also. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Texas has like passed one of the strictest abortion laws in the country um basically criminalizing abortions after six weeks and for most people if you have not ever been scared of the thought of pregnancy um most people don't catch pregnancy kind of until four weeks at the earliest so six weeks is incredibly strict and then to criminalize it is um, absurd and kind of shows that you're not actually super vested in the pro-life of it all. It seems very anti-life to me. Um, so yeah, that's a pretty good one that should make you angry. And
0: and I think the other part of it, which is, I don't know which are more troubling, but certainly the fact that it is setting up essentially a vigilante system right at when the you time. you rat when on your neighbors. You rat on your neighbors and no matter where you come down on vaccines, one of the features that we are certainly battling is misinformation or lack of science. And so this really feels like the, a hard step in the wrong direction. But I think we'll come yeah. back to this topic for sure.
1: Absolutely. I just want to say, we'll link some resources if you are in Texas and do need access. What I've been kind of told is that if this is something that you need, don't tell anybody and head out of state to visit somebody if you have the means or the resources. And we'll also link, I believe there's a couple nonprofits now that are providing um, medication if need be, which I guess is actually a really good segue, um, you know, in terms of giving aid to people who need it. And oftentimes our government or governments in general fail to do so, and we need to turn to other types of organizations um, kind of to receive those services. So (laughs) is that a good segue? Did that work?
0: I guess it did. I mean, it's of course, it's just such a worry that basic services uh, for people who are least mobile, (laughs) least able to address them are not coming from, from governments or from local communities. But yeah, I think it is a good segue into talking about both your dissertation and the broader question about how do you provide, not just spot assistance at moments of crisis, but how do you do longer-term development, education, resources?
1: Yeah. So I guess this is really timely um, in that sense. It's timely personally because I'm in a lot of classes right now um, kind of on social justice and that sort of thing and also like management of nonprofits, which is a big part of kind of high-level social work. Um, So – If you are tuning in now, I'm currently a Master's of Social Work student, taking a lot of these kind of classes at the moment. And I majored in undergrad in political science and human rights. And so um, we kind of wanted to talk about what my project was. And what's cool, I think, is it really did stem from a trip you and I took uh, to Kenya. So when I was in my sophomore year of college, I want to say... Um, my dad and I went out to Kenya, Nairobi in particular, to begin with. Um, you know, actually, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about your involvement in Africa over the years and the research you've been doing? Because while I think my thesis is fun to talk about, you've been really involved on the continent uh, for a really long time.
0: Well, I think keeping it focused here is probably useful because you can go in a lot of directions, but my own research laboratory, first at Princeton and then at Berkeley, has worked on issues of sustainable energy, the connection between energy choices and gender um, across East Africa, but in particular in Kenya for a long time. And so the opportunity that arose here to look at what are the different modes to deliver services came out of a really unique situation where a number of uh, friends and and coworkers were working to set up several programs in inner city settings in in Nairobi in particular. And so one of them was on waste and sanitation set up by a student in my lab. Another one was a a women's community center to empower women. both through safe places to have access to bathrooms and do washing and have more secure places for child care. And the process to set up this effort took not only the vision and the muscle and the financing to do it, but a real dance with authorities in Nairobi in particular, where place to set up an effort where the connections between political parties and um, important blocks of voters. All of this tied the question about how do you provide these services in a way that's both cost effective and sustained to broader political features. And that's really where a natural dissertation topic for you came up. So I'll I'll kick it back over as you decided between what you would work on for uh, for, for your undergraduate thesis.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, we had gone out to visit this nonprofit called the Human Needs Project, um, and I really fell in love with Kibera, which is known as one of the world's largest urban slums. Now, slum is an interesting word um, for a lot of reasons. I think a lot of academics in particular do not like the use of the word, Um, but the people in Kibera refer to, you know, Kibera as Kibera or Kibra slum, so... I want to honor that while also acknowledging that the word in itself isn't great. Um, But so this nonprofit had been developed. And one of the things that ended up happening was um, they shared a border or a wall with a primary school. Um, And because of this and because of kind of the way things broke down, they ended up providing free water delivery to this primary school. And primary school in Kenya is like K through eight. Um, so a little bit different than in the U.S., but that's a lot of formative years. And and it's a lot of school children um, who you see in Kibera very regularly and you see them walking around and, um, you know, there's been a lot of questions of ethics of slum tourism and people coming in. And so the word for white people that I wanna say really quickly um, or Europeans or foreigners is Mzungu. And so you'll walk through Kibera and all the kids go, Mzungu, how are you? And, um, you know, I think that's a really interesting part of the community is like the school children are always very visible. But so my project ended up being an evaluation of the water delivery. So I did a kind of comparison between the school that we provided water to and the other schools in Kibera and, you know, tried to control for as much as possible and looked at was this water delivery affecting the students in a positive manner and kind of doing a program evaluation. And what's interesting about research, especially research abroad, where the (laughs) statistics are a little bit harder to do, especially when, you know, records aren't always tracked very well, is you kind of come out of some of these research projects with like a, yeah, like I think it works, but we're not totally sure. So, you know, trying to use both quantitative and qualitative evaluations. But basically what my conclusion was is the water delivery is obviously helpful for people who do not have access to water in their own homes. Um, it per makes, it, it makes um, providing lunch feasible for all the kids because they cook down a lot of rice and beans. Um, but where it seemed to be really helpful was for kind of preteen teenage girls who were starting to menstruate and in a culture where menstruation is really looked down upon, if you don't have access to water, that's something that can kind of prevent you from going to school. And so if your school had access to water, you had younger women or girls who were getting their periods and then able to come to school and clean up um, and stay in school for longer than they might have otherwise and that's where the water delivery ended up kind of looking like it was most effective Um, obviously there is a lot of research that still would need to be done there's lots more program evaluations that always need to be done with nonprofit work but that's kind of where i ended up coming out on my thesis which is you know we know that having access to water is helpful um, and this is a particular area where it seemed like it was very helpful.
0: So so I guess the other parts of the context um, sort of tie this together is one is this is a very big elementary school or primary school. This is about yeah. 4,000 students. Um, and it is in a core location in, in in Kibera. So the place where we were ultimately granted the permit by the mayor to build the clinic was both beneficial and and challenging. It was first a heroic effort by the founders to really focus on, on cleanliness and women's and children's security in this area. And that's what the center was founded around but the fact that we discovered um, that we had an exceptionally good borehole and all this clean water meant that the partnership that chade just described with the school could be taken to another level right away right. so that uh, water services could be provided to this community and that not only allowed this human needs project to really sprout much faster in the sense that it became a hub of the area. But also, it was directly next to a politically charged area, a place where rallies happen for political parties, where there's a huge amount of traffic back and forth, there's lots of goods being sold. And so the The opportunity to provide assistance and partnership to the school and to the young women in particular that Shadi is describing, I think sets this up as a really interesting case of what are the ways that you can do a long-term partnership as long as we have the supply of water. The Human Needs Project can be a really great partner for the school in the context of an under-resourced area, but also an area with a huge amount of pride. um, One of the things that's really notable in Kibera is that people don't ask for handouts in any near the way that happens elsewhere. There's a real recognition of Kibera as a place trying to lift up individuals. And so this focus on these school kids that end up being the core of your thesis is really kind of central to the idea that Kibera has an identity and it's an ethnic identity, but it's also a development based identity.
1: Yeah. No, and and I think it feels really interesting because Kibera is a place that is kind of like no other. Um, I actually just had a friend over yesterday and somehow we got on the topic of Kenya and I spent two hours showing photos and videos and then we called my friends back in Kibera. Like I've never had a place that I loved kind of that quickly in such a way and there's such this sense of like entrepreneurship and community and I but I also think it's interesting because it feels very weird to be able to drop into a place like this especially as a mzungu and you know feel so loved and like honored and all of this. And I think that brings up a really interesting dynamic, especially with nonprofit work. I do also want to say we will definitely provide links, um, about Cabera. If you want to go learn more, it's one of the most interesting places I've ever been. I could talk about Cabera for hours and hours and hours, and I've got lots of audio clips. So maybe we'll do an episode where we talk a bit more about Cabera and maybe bring some people, you know, who live there on, um, but I I really also want to acknowledge that there's been a really big shift of culture, which is what I did for part of my thesis was looking at kind of why Kibera exists and what it's been like. And, you know, it's a place that has also been known for really intense you know, violence and danger. And it's a place where the community itself banded together and kind of put together community organizations and policing. And there's, you know, there's no fire department. And so the young men banded together and built their own fire department because the electrical wires catch on fire all the time. And um, I think there's been this really interesting element of community that's been built. And I, I think you and I both feel it when we're there. But it also feels weird to get to do nonprofit work where we're delivering aid, especially aid that, you know, we have prescribed as the most necessary, which I'm not saying it isn't, but it's always interesting to think of us kind of as getting to drop in and drop out um, in terms of nonprofit work.
0: Well, I guess you know there's a couple elements of that. One is that Kibera does have this culture. As you go around, you can see these little banners and flags on lots of the poles, and they're identifying not only this is part of Kibera, but even sub-communities within Kibera. It's yeah. a melting pot of low-income residents coming into the Nairobi area. Um, Kibera has itself a long history of where it was assigned to in terms of which out of Nairobi, groups uh, would kind of settle would settle there. But things happen that change the profile. So one of the things that the Human Needs Project ran, in addition to water washing, sanitation services, were things like Kabara's Got Talent, modeled Incredible. after international competitions. We will link and- some great videos. Yeah. And not only are the competitions great, but the things that have come out of it. And so recently, a a Kenyan rose in the international ranks in ballet. And so suddenly, yeah. the Human Needs Project was then also asked and was able to devote some of the rooms that it was using previously for teaching classes on building apps and things to a ballet center. And little kids there seeing a local resident of Kibera doing doing good, um, opened up new opportunities. And so what began as an idea to focus on on basic wash services, as they're called, became kind of a cultural development reflection of the spirit of Kibera. And it goes on to this day, anyone who goes on yeah. to the Human Needs Project website, you will see these series of activities that are layered on top of trying to meet in a sustained way the needs of particular women and, and children in the area.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I guess there's like so much culture to Kibera that we could, again, we could talk about it for days. I mean, it's one of the most interesting and like wonderful places I have ever been in my entire life. But I guess with that, you know, you do a lot of this nonprofit work and you are also visibly white. At least I can sometimes pass for brown. Uh, they
0: call they used to call you the same thing. So I mean, I still get called
1: Zungu, but I think people in Kenya think I'm Ethiopian often, which is interesting because I have, because of my hair. Um, so uh, you know, I pass a little better at certain times, but um, I guess my question for you then is, you know, how do you feel about nonprofit work in general? I think that I have a huge qualm with, you know. We talk a lot about things like the military industrial complex. Like, there is the nonprofit, you know, industrial type complex where a lot of these services are forced to be provided by nonprofits. And nonprofits are often focused on fundraising as well. So, you often lose a little bit of the service provision that might happen. I don't even know how to describe it. I'm just curious how you feel about dropping in on some of these places. And I know you've had a long sustained engagement with Africa. So I don't want to like say it's inherently bad, but I do think it's interesting that you and I, A, do a lot of nonprofit work and B, do a lot of nonprofit work that's not like directly in our backyard. And by what I mean by that is it is pretty easy to look at our own communities, be it Oakland, be it LA, whatever, and say like, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. And I think it's always interesting when people go abroad and do a tourism along with their aid. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that.
0: Well, so I don't, I don't have the angst about it that you're trying to to to, to rise up here, and largely because the work that I started doing in East Africa was work on energy projects work on cookstoves on solar on small distributed energy systems in the part of the world that has some of the lowest levels or had some of the lowest levels of energy access and so the human needs project for me was really an outgrowth of several decades of work both on the NGO side, as you describe, but also work with the Kenyan government, with the UN, with the Food and Agriculture Administration of of, of the UN on different aspects of energy for sustainability. And I think that what's the most key, key part of any effort to do development innovation work is a sustained connection. And for me, that longest single connection in my career has been in East Africa, in particular in Kenya. What's what's interesting is that when I started working in Kenya, um, pre-cell phone, pre-all kinds of things, it was a big deal to get kind of a weekly phone call out. Uh, I'd have to go to the telecoms office in the middle of the night, um, wait in line, generally be- behind refugees from Somalia or Chad or whatever was the recent crisis, just to get a call back home to both check in and say I was doing fine, but also to do whatever amount of ordering materials or things we had to do and so that from that beginning kenya has gone through this rocket-like transformation in fact kenya has changed essentially the same way china has in the sense that kenya is now no longer a country let's
1: let's also quick quick sidebar is that China was involved with said development, but absolutely. Keep going. But let's
0: let's let's try to keep some focus. So we'll we'll come back to that in a bit. But so Kenya's um, rocket up the um, international economic ladder meant it transitioned incredibly quickly from a country that had all a, had many of the worst kind of. Uh, demographics and signs in terms of income and access to truly a middle-income country where I go back to neighborhoods, not just in Nairobi, but in other cities, and they're unrecognizable one year to the next because the number of new buildings have gone up. And many of the big international aid groups have now recategorized Kenya as not one of the frontline places. And it feels a lot like what happened in other countries, you know, years, decades before. So the context in Kenya is changing, but of course there is always, like there is in Oakland, California and Los Angeles, there's there's an underclass, but also it's a hub of refugees from regional crises. And so there is essentially an ongoing demand for what Kibera is, and that is a place that is still very poor, but where access to development partnerships and opportunities, both for individuals and groups is still there. And so one of the things that I see about the interaction here is that while you don't want to necessarily have to count on nonprofits or other groups to provide what seems like they should be basic services that communities would provide. It's also true that nonprofits can often much more quickly, both innovate and try out models. And so one of the things that's most interesting to me about the setting in Kibera around um, water and sanitation, wash services, but also energy and telecom is that you really get a fast testing of what works and doesn't work. And so energy access rates have gone up dramatically, access to having um, quality services while still really challenging, goes fast. So I actually see these as places where the innovation side of progress can be tried and vetted. And if you do that with community partnership, as opposed to some you know, imposition, there is a real benefit to this law, this ongoing process. So that, that to me is where I feel like Kibera is a place that, actively wants to take on that role. And so I've been really happy to partner there. And just just for for, for full disclosure, I am the energy director of the Kibera, uh, of this human needs project in Kibera.
1: Yeah. I guess it's interesting to me that you don't worry as much about the nonprofit industrial complex. So I guess like that's where I tend to have a lot of qualms in general. I think that, you know, like in full, like Audrey Lord, right? Like you are dismantling these tools of oppression by using the tools of the oppressor. I think that nonprofits can be to- really top down, and you know, I love the Human Needs Project, but I've gotten into lots of arguments over you know things where I've worked with people on the ground who have said we need X, Y, and Z, and I bring that back, and the answer is well we're doing A, B, and C right now, and it's like okay, but the community is asking for certain things and it feels kind of self-indulgent. And this is not just human needs project. This is any nonprofit I have ever interacted with. Um, And it feels like oftentimes it's a very top-down process. So
0: I think this is the the challenge. I mean, there's no question there's lots of nonprofits that have the problem of they are a hammer looking for a nail. That there's a thing that they want to do, either because it technically makes sense or because there's a donor. There's lots of things that drive nonprofits to have a given mandate, even if a given, even if a community said, "Well, that's great, but we need something else." Um, and I, I think you're absolutely right. That's a tension that you see all over and in some. I don't know if it's more more extreme settings. I mean, one of the places that really pulls this out to me is we also work in Rwanda. And right on the border of Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo are a pair of towns, Giseni on the Rwanda side and Goma on mm. the Congo side. And a huge number of the international development aid workers who work in the Congo at one of the largest sites for UN refugee logistics, they live on the Rwanda side, and they go back and forth each day. So you see people walking across the border, going across in fancy air-conditioned uh, vehicles, kind of all all manner of things. And that's a place that has always struck me as an example of exactly the problems, but also the logistics that you're highlighting here. On the one hand if you are able to cross this border back and forth, there are services and things that you can provide into the Congo far more easily by being based in Rwanda. On the other side, you also can get into this complex that we are doing something for them. We in the NGO community are not living the same daily reality as the much more challenging situation uh, just literally a kilometer away across the border. And so this... This issue about how do you leverage international access and abilities without making, without separating yourself or your group and its planning, its mission, etc., from the direct needs. That's a that's an ongoing challenge and some groups navigate it well and some groups navigate it poorly. No
1: question. Yeah. And I think, I think in Kibera it's really highlighted for me, there's two big examples. One is all of the people who come in for a couple of days. And I think we see this a lot, especially with like high school trips to go build a school where it's like, yes, but what you're actually doing is tourism. And what's probably more helpful in these situations is if you were to just donate the money, Um, So kind of weighing that calculation. And for me, what always really hits home is in Capera, you know, I maybe have to spend $10 a day if I am taking tons of motorcycle or boda boda rides and I'm, you know, buying the nicest lunch of the day. You know, it's, it's not a place that things are really expensive. And I fly back particularly through Zurich. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Zurich airport, if you're listening. Um, we have. But <laughs> we have. Um, we, we did a fun little alcohol-stealing expedition um, in the Zurich airport. Which Liberating. Is a story, <laughs> which is a story for another time. I think you and I do a really good. But the best part about traveling with you, Dad, is I do think the like 8 a.m. beers we coordinate on very well. Um, but you fly back through Zurich where... A chai latte is $10. Um, And it's always incredibly jarring, I think, for me to go from, A, the noise of Kenya to the sounds of Zurich, which is like silence, and the pricing. And, you know, I would come back from trips and sit in my apartment and be like, this is absurd. Um, I just think
0: the flight part of that is already the fact that that right. you can work in Cabero one day and then oh my, my time is up and then you jump on a plane with all the amenities and fly back. There's no, there's no question and you know these dichotomies are huge. I guess the the question for me is are you able to leverage international resources to truly aid the communities you're working with or as you say is it more of a of a tourism based thing? And so I I look at the opportunities here as one where in most of the cases where I've seen sort of true progress and in Kenya we've been on an effort to battle against a proposed and a funded coal plant that would go into a cultural heritage site on the coast near lamu um, or a a mega dam that that we're working against in Malaysian Borneo and what I see over and over again is that the most successful efforts to really change the politics or the economics are one where there is really a partnership of local activists, community groups, and international attention and resources. And in some cases, that works pretty well. The, the cases I just mentioned have been, I think, really leveraged by this inside-outside partnership. And other places, it can get derailed because the desire of a donor or the vision of a CEO or something takes away from the local community-based effort to to bring attention internationally to local crises and to resource them. And to me, that's really the, the guiding line in a lot of this. If you feel that you're able to enable socially just actions, both locally, say in Kibera, but also politically in Geneva or London or New York, then to my mind that upside works. And that means you have to be incredibly vigilant and sometimes one is successful, but there's lots and lots of development failures out there. No question. In fact, decades worth and trillions of dollars worth.
1: Right. Yeah. I guess I just always worry that in nonprofit work, um, you know, even if your heart is in the right place, if – Everything is not set up properly, it ends up being so kind of like self promotion based instead of, you know, actually empowering. And I also think something I've been talking about recently in class, which is what I wanted to bring up earlier, is that oftentimes nonprofits are working to get us back to a baseline that's not great. So maybe not this one in particular where you're bringing water to people who have not historically had access, but there are lots of nonprofits where, you know, I don't think they're necessarily framed with this social justice perspective which a lot of you know services just needed to be provided in general but um kind of through the lens of social work one of our core beliefs um in terms of our code of ethics is social justice and sometimes I think it's interesting to look at nonprofits who are just struggling to get us back to a baseline and that's not their fault that's kind of the fault of the society that we're in um But it's very interesting to think about nonprofits through this lens of, okay, but like, what's the actual empowerment going forward? What's the social justice element? What's the advocacy that's being done, et cetera, Um, which isn't necessarily needs to be on the nonprofit. Again, I want to be very clear that a lot of nonprofits are just struggling to survive. Um, But I think that lens also is hard for me is, you know, where is this baseline, especially if we live in a society where the baseline is bad?
0: Well, I mean, we're going to have to come back to do this one on a, on another episode, but you're absolutely right. Um, the idea that you're providing basic services and that's it, or a nonprofit is a conduit to opportunities as communities involve. This is a place where, you know, the charter of an NGO or the funder or the context of where they launched in a given community, these things are parts of what sometimes kind of ossify groups to see they have one mission you know we do wash services or we do something else well in Kenya that's evolving in other parts of of the region in East Africa there is different needs and so one of the challenges here are is the is is the mission and mandate of an organization be it an NGO be it a you know a church charity be it a government office to really meet the evolving needs of the community, or is it to kind of rack up numbers and say, well, we do this one thing, we do one basic service. That's something where um, not only aid groups, but I think really everyone involved, whether you're doing this in Kibera or Oakland, California, south side of Chicago, that challenge is one that we don't have a very good way to think through because you see communities to a, to a large extent through whatever was your initial kind of vision. And so you and I saw Kibera at one point. It happens that when you and I both start working there most actively, elections were the thing on people's yeah. minds. And elections have been a critical part of the politics of why there's attention, why government offices want to assist in a place because this is a place you can go get votes.
1: And, and it's a place that you can go place – non-real votes, let's just say.
0: And this is not unique at all to Kenya. You know, in, in Chicago, they say, you know, you vote early, vote often, you can vote when you're dead. So this is hardly a unique feature of Kenya, but it is one of the reasons why both there was national interest in, in NGOs and people getting involved. Um, but it's also one that highlights the wider politics. And Politics in Kenya is a complicated colonial, post-colonial history of who is empowered, which tribal groups have certain offices. Um, it is something you see, you know, not just in Kenya. You see in the United States. You see elsewhere. We we have different names for it, but it's that process of being responsive to local needs and not source of ossification, of seeing communities as static. That's one of the areas where social justice is the new lens. Now, many groups have been doing great social justice work for a long time. Others have been doing not so great work in that area for a long time, but that's the new language. And so building out an understanding of how does the work you do on water services or on teaching young kids, young girls, for example, how to code at the Human Needs Project, that's an example of this Tension this back and forth around what services are needed at that time in a given community.
1: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess then to follow up with you, what do you think is the best way? Because I have a lot of thoughts on this, but what do you think is the best way for the average person to get involved um, abroad? Because I think that a lot of times, you know, especially if you have capital. I don't want to pull like an effective altruist out here because that is not what I am and I want to be very clear on that. But like oftentimes I think that in terms of these trips, it's often better just to donate Um, instead of sending yourself out there to do, you know, whatever little BS you are going to do. I also do want to acknowledge that I think it is often important to like see these things firsthand and like get involved and meet people. But in terms of the way I think Americans often do this kind of um, non-profit tourism, I think often the best way is just to donate instead. So I'm curious what you think the best way is for the average person to get involved.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think for everyone it's different. I think that that sustained engagement is one right. of the key aspects of this. and Whether that sustained engagement is your time, your thoughts, your education, your money, whatever else, I think that's often the key. Because the places and projects that I've seen as most successful had that Evolving partnership that both sides knew they were going to be with this for some time. And it wasn't Absolutely. going to be a given milestone. We reach a certain amount of money, we defeat a certain coal plant. It was a longer term effort. And those are the places and those are the partnerships that I feel really fit into this mold of. You still make mistakes, but it is a known thing on both sides or all groups that this will be a sustained effort to, to enact.
1: All right. Do you want to take us out?
0: Yeah. So with this this episode was really meant to be sort of a bit of a two parter. Next next week we're going to talk about a lot of the images, um, a lot of the approaches to thinking about both development projects and resources. Um, and you, as a photographer, uh, we're definitely going to come back to a lot of the a lot of the most striking aspects. of not just Kibera, but places where one kind of engages.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. Do you have a question?
0: So I guess I do have a final question for you. And that is when you think about Kibera, what's like the most striking image for you?
1: Um, I have a photograph that we we can include on our little Instagram infographic of um, these kids kind of walking home from school in the, in the slush of mud. Um, But in general, I think it's just like the community element, like, There's something so powerful about being on the back of someone's motorcycle at night as like traffic is held up because people are like talking in the street. And those moments are really what sticks out to me most um, in terms of being in Kibera. That and then drinking uh, Chang'e, which is the Kiberan moonshine uh, in those little community organizations and getting to just really talk to people in in a really personal way. Those are the moments I think that are really the most incredible to me. But with that, thank you guys so much. Um, We'll link a ton of things in the show notes if you want to learn more. And we'll be back talking about Kibera and ethics next week.
0: Thanks so much for joining us.
1: All right. Bye, guys.